And I'm wondering if, especially in a culture where politicians have become influencers, is silence on all of our part, right, is ignoring this type of stuff, whether we're the media or whether we're just outraged people on Twitter with the ability to quote tweet, is that a way to break the cycle? I mean, I think the better question is, what is news? If I even think about, you know, the war in Ukraine and how quickly we were able to tap into live Twitter feeds from participants on the ground, right, to to learn very detailed information about the movement of troops, about the conditions on the ground, it it, it changes what news means. Um, and so in that context, I, I, I do wonder if it, there isn't a case to be made for this strategic silence, even when it feels to cut against the grain of the old, you know, traditional journalistic ethics. When somebody for the Times writes about Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, is anybody being convinced of anything they don't already believe? I'm Charlie Warzel. Welcome to Offline. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Offline. I'm Charlie Warzel. This week, I'm filling in for John as he is, well, offline. My guest this week is the writer Michael Sacassis. Online, he writes under the name L.M. Sacassis and is the author of the fantastic newsletter, The Convivial Society, as well as a forthcoming book called 41 Questions, Technology and the Good Life. Michael is one of my favorite technology thinkers. Where I am a journalist, he is a scholar, and he frequently draws on the writing of past theorists, from Arendt to McLuhan to Ivan Illich, and he tries to link their ideas to the technologies and media of today. The result is a conversation about technology that isn't laser-focused on the present, but that has a long memory. His work is deeply focused on the ways we can live with technology, but also, hopefully, preserve essential parts of our humanity. He grapples constantly with the ways that our new tools, from Twitter to Zoom to iPhones, change us, and the way that our usage ultimately changes those tools. When it comes to the internet and our media ecosystems, it's easy to hurl vague, blanket critiques like, social media is making everything feel worse. But Sacassus's writing goes deeper and tries to make us understand why, and then give us the language and even the agency to change our relationship to certain technologies. Recently, Sacassus has been writing about the ways that the internet, a combination of social media and traditional media, have trapped us in a doom loop of sorts. Every day we wake up and we are barraged by new horrors, eroding civil rights, existential climate fears, mass shootings, and deeply dysfunctional politics. You can't open your phone or turn on the television without experiencing and absorbing untenable levels of grief. And yet it feels like we're constantly fighting over the same things and hardly anything changes. Sacassus describes this as a stuckness, and he argues that there's a reason for it. The internet, he says, is trapping us in the past and making it harder than ever to live in the present and fight for a better future. This conversation, like so much of Sacassus's work, opened my mind, and the end features a beautiful meditation on unplugging that left me unexpectedly inspired. I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did. As always, if you have questions, comments, or complaints about the show, feel free to email us at offline at cricket.com. Here's Michael Sagasis. 
Michael Sacassis. Welcome to Offline. Um, I wanted to base the majority of this discussion on a piece that you wrote back in May in your excellent newsletter, The Convivial Society. Uh, the piece is titled, We Are Not Living in a Simulation, We Are Living in the Past. For listeners, I want to note that what I, what I love about this piece is that unlike a lot of writing and thinking about the internet, including my own, uh, you don't just come out and say that social media or information ecosystems are making everything feel worse, but instead the piece attempts to explain why we feel the way that we do. At the outset of the article, you suggest that the germ of the idea came as you were thinking about this seemingly common experience that many of us have uh, recently in the sort of post-Trump, mid-perma pandemic, mm -hmm. uh, and that's a feeling of being stuck. I think a lot of people hearing that are going to just immediately relate uh, to this idea, this vague notion of stuckness. But could you tell me what you personally mean by feeling stuck? I think, uh, yeah, a lot of what you said is is part of uh, what I had in mind. Um, but the sense that we we seem to be stuck in loops that we can never quite escape, that um, especially online debates and conversations tend to uh, never move productively forward, uh, but sp spiral downward, as it were, and that we're constantly having the same kinds of conversations, never resolving um, the issues that they're about, uh, that there is no forward momentum. It just seems as if we're um, doomed to kind of just repeat the same patterns that, that we've been trapped in uh, for some time now. So and then I think even personally, we, we might feel this um, where uh, we have maybe a, a lack of a sense of purpose um, or we find ourselves um, acting in ways or, or behaving online or, or um, maybe engaging online in ways that we sort of know are counterproductive, but can't seem to uh, shake ourselves loose from. And so that it generates a sense of, uh, again, just falling back into, into patterns we never can't quite uh, escape or, or transcend. Do you see this stuckness as something that's generally separate from the kind of anxiety and dread that you, know, you can feel plugging into, let's just say, something like Twitter or even you know, just scrolling the news on Instagram or TikTok or some social media app? Do you feel like the anxiety and dread we feel is a part of that stuckness or do you feel that that's something kind of separate? This is really its own phenomenon. Yeah, I think maybe they're intertwined. Um, the anxiety and dread um, is a kind of a emotive response maybe to the sense of being unable to not just be stuck, um, but to to be confronted with situations that we feel we have very little agency over. I mean, we've been confronted with a, a, a tremendous amount of uncertainty uh, over the last few years as we've tried to navigate uh, any number of um, uh, crises. The, the pandemic, I think, is a great example of this, uh, especially early on. Um, and so we, in some respects, I think, turn to uh, social media often to somehow alleviate that uncertainty, to go in search of the right bit of information um, and often don't find what we're looking for and end up feeling more anxious because of, you know, this decision to search for uh, these answers through social media. Uh, and so there's a, a stuckness in the sense that we can't ever, again, find the answer, find the solution, 
that we turn to social media for, that we might be turning to, to social media for or digital media more broadly. And then that probably contributes to the sense of, um, of anxiety, of having to deal with an uncertainty that we can't resolve. I want to hold on some of the, the specifics of, of those dynamics and the idea of agency and come back to that. But, but let's talk first about the, the premise of the piece. Um, when, when I first heard, or I guess read, uh, this, this piece, it kind of cracked open my brain. Um, you, you wrote that, uh, quote, the internet as a mediator of human interactions is not a place. It is a time. It is the past. I mean this in a literal sense. The layers of artifice that mediate our online interactions mean that everything that comes to us online comes to us from the past, sometimes the very recent past, but the past nonetheless. Um, when, when I wrote about this theory uh, in my newsletter, uh, I had a lot of people tell me that, no, 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 social media is too focused on the present. And so I, I'd love if you can explain a little bit more of what you mean about the distinction um, between the feeling that everything is happening right now and then your notion and theory that so much of what we're actually encountering online is coming from the recent past. Right. I think the idea as it crystallized for me and it, um, it, it, it was a sort of idea that all of a sudden kind of enters in, in, into one's mind. And, uh, and, and I thought, well, yeah, I think there's something here. And, and it's, it's, um, like I said, I, I mean this very literally, right? So, so if I'm scrolling Twitter, for example, um, everything that I see is already coming to me from the past. In other words, it's, it's, it's been generated not in the in my immediate presence, uh, which is the the lived present, right? But it's being generated in the past, and and this is um you know the the reason this is so is because uh, what what we encounter online are inscriptions, right? And so so much of um, social media is is also textual, right? Or or that there is some some sort of inscription, whether it's the the meme or um, the the text that we might type out uh, that we in that act of of writing, we are creating uh, a document, right? We're documenting something, expressing ourselves, but in that expression, creating a document. And then what others encounter is that document, right? It's that um, mediated documentation of the thought that I may have had in the present, right? So, and and I realize that because I understand the the pushback that no, this is actually very presentist. Uh, and in fact, I, I've actually made that case in the past. I've, I've sort of thought about it in that way as well. Um, and and I won't necessarily um, say that no, it's it's that's an absolutely wrong way to look at it. Uh, but that even when we're thinking about being entwined in the present, it's still kind of dominated by the the archives that we're building. Right, we're, we're always turned back towards what has just been said. Right? We're never quite turned forward looking into the future or simply inhabiting the present. Whenever we are contributing to uh, engaging in social media, we are literally building archives that are documents of what has already been said and what has already happened. And so some of those may come to us rather instantaneously, right? So that it, it does feel as, as if this is, in fact, uh, presently happening. Um, but they, they very quickly recede. They're always receding and there's a kind of piling up on top of layer over layer of 
um, of sort of mediated inscriptions, right? That builds up this archive of the past, which is what we're always turned toward, I think, when we're engaging online. And so I think that's what I had in mind. And, and, and that's why it, you know, it struck me that we're anchored to the past in, in a way that may be really counterproductive uh, towards finding a kind of agency in the, in the present or, or even to be able to think more productively um, about the future. And I think about this a lot just on a very practical level, right? I am someone who is using Twitter way more than they should as sort of the primary social media experience. And I notice a lot of time that, you know, especially if a tweet of mine gets a little bit of pickup and is, you know, not maybe not viral, but goes, you know, out beyond the network um, that I intended it for. And I'll notice people coming to this observation six hours later, maybe a day and a half later, and the whole context surrounding what I was talking about has completely changed. And I think that's a great way to sort of illustrate in a very practical level what's happening in the way too that that can cause this disconnect. I often see people get very mad about things uh, that were those, you know, documents of a very specific sliver or moment in time. Um, You know, I actually see it happening too across different types of media. Interestingly enough, um, I am a contributing writer at The Atlantic and The Atlantic just opened up its archives for um, its 160 plus year archives of, of everything. And there were a lot of people going through it recently and saying like, but did you see this article from, you know, 1880 that is, you know, very racist. Uh, and and there's this kind of <laughs> this way that we're sort of litigating those things coming to it from the present mm-hmm. and, and talking about, you know, the past, talking about these inscriptions as if, you know, they have to sort of mean the same thing throughout all of time. It's, 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 it's a very confusing space. Um, but one of the lines that, that really kind of set off alarm bells for me was um, you wrote, because we live in the past when we are online, we will find ourselves fighting over the past. And that part about the, the fighting is, is really important, I think, in this experience of, of the stuckness. Um, around the time that I read your piece, I, I saw this chart um, that was published by Axios about social media engagement around mass shootings. Um, and it showed that after the tragic shooting in uh, Uvalde, Texas, that online engagement around the tragedy plummeted after a couple of days. Um, there was a, a shooting, um, a white supremacist shot up a supermarket in Buffalo the week before that, or two weeks before that. And you know the same sort of thing happened where it, it was dominated social media for a short time and fell off the map. Um, and this idea that even with absolute tragedy, it's so hard to you know rally the country's attention. And I guess do you, do you see this as all of a piece with your theory? Because it seems to me that that two things are happening here: that one, we're just constantly barraged by new events that make it very hard to live in the present, and then because we're trapped in that flow, we kind of tend to argue about the same things, and it's all that backwards facing. Yeah, I mean, I, certainly the the preponderance of information that we encounter makes it very difficult, I think, for any particular you know event to gain traction. Um, you know, we've talked about information overload for a very long time now. I think that's you know um, uh, a phrase that that probably has you know fifteen twenty years old at this point. Um, but I, I still don't know that we fully grappled with 
the, the, the consequences of what we're talking about uh, when, we, when we talk about information overload. Um, and I think it's, it's both information and, and, and what I've called affect overload, right? Because it's not just that we're, we're being confronted with, um, with data, but we're also being confronted with, um, often as the examples that you just gave, uh, with very emotionally trying information, information that elicits, um, you know, a sense of, uh, of tragedy, uh, sadness, anger, frustration, and we're, we're never cut off from it, right? We, so there's no, for the extremely online, of course, and, but I think for, for most people now, it may be the case that we, we have very little distance from that constant flow. You, you know, you mentioned other kinds of media that might, you know, also kind of partake of the same dynamic. And, and I think that's true, right? So any, any, any uh, document, any documentation, whether it's writing, a photograph, a video, film, um, a, a magazine article from, from uh, you know, 1880, uh, they are all from the past, right? They all arrive to us from the past in some way or another. What I think the difference is, in, is that the, the ubiquity of our connection to the internet, right? The, the fact that it is always with us, that we're constantly plugged into it, um, so that it's not as if we we sit down, we encounter the newspaper, and in, in it we read about things that happened yesterday, right? So when, when somebody opened up the newspaper, they were also being confronted with the past. Um, but it's that we were constantly plugged into that stream, right? And so um, we're bombarded with the information, and it's, it's always receding into the past, and we are overwhelmed I think our emotional uh, capacity for emotional response is overwhelmed. Um, and in many cases, I think also our ability to process the, the, the degree of information that we encounter, um, you know, can be epistemically challenging. Um, and so all of these things, I think, do combine uh, to, to create a situation where, yeah, it's difficult to sustain attention just in terms of, of how... Um, our internet experience is structured through social media. Um, it can be very difficult for any event to gain traction, or, you know, for, for very long at all. So it's not surprising that even that amount of time is shrinking over time. And we have these these events too that they all seem to sort of build and layer on top of each other, right? Like a part of that stuckness that you talk about is this notion that it's not just that, you know, we, two sort of almost opposite things kind of seem to be happening, right? Which is that nothing can stick in and have that traction, but at the same time, we just keep building on top of it. So it's 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 just like crisis atop of mm-hmm. crisis atop of crisis. And I think people are really overwhelmed by that. Um, one thing that, that you've described with this is that the sort of digitization of all this media, it's this disordered relationship to time, right? Because the focus is so disproportionately in one direction. Um, I'm sort of curious if you could expand on what you think that is doing to us. You know, like like you mentioned, 20, 30 years ago, we had newspapers, we obviously had media that was focused in the past. But now, because that focus is so constant, like what is that doing to just average people to be spending so much time dwelling? 
backwards as opposed to, you know, looking into the future or really enjoying and absorbing the present? <laughs> well, um, a lot. I think it's doing a lot. Um, I think it's a common complaint to feel as if we're unable to inhabit the present um, and unable to kind of be, uh, you know, the, the cliches to be in the moment. Right. And so I think there's a moral dimension to that uh, in the sense that, you know, what what often is calling our attention in the, in the moment is, you know, the people we, we may be with. Right. But we have a difficult time attending to them um, as, as fully as we ought uh, because we have a kind of compulsive relationship to the information flows that are always present with us um, that we carry around, you know, in our pockets um, that, that are always before us. And so I think the, that, that inability perhaps that we might feel sometimes to, uh, to simply step away from those, those flows of, of, uh, of information, uh, those social media feeds in order to simply be with the people we ought to be with, uh, to give our attention to the tasks that, um, we know are required of us, um, our obligations. Uh, and I, and I think then that kind of, um, sort of self-loathing that comes from knowing that you, you, you ought to be doing something other than doom scrolling at this particular time, even if it maybe is just, you know, getting a decent night of sleep. There are, again, emotional, I think even kind of physical consequences to that. We are not uh, perhaps becoming the kind of people that we want to be um, or dealing with others in the way that we know that they deserve. And, and I think that has ramifications across, you know, past, present, and future, right? So what might it mean to kind of a rightly ordered relationship to to the past? I think we, we ought not to ignore the past, right? And saying that we're always focused on the past is not to suggest that, that we, you know, we should not relate to it properly, um, learn from it where appropriate, um, value the histories that inform our understanding um, of the world in which we live. Um, and likewise, as we think about the future, you know, we can imagine Anxiety is a kind of uh, disordered relationship to the future. But in the way that our digital technologies encourage us, maybe train us uh, to experience time, I think it could throw off our ability to relate rightly to the past, rightly to the present, and rightly to the future. And I think we find ourselves sort of skewed on all of those axes. We're sometimes too preoccupied with the past, but in a way that's not actually generative of understanding and wisdom. We're unable to be in the present in the way that we, we know we, we ought to be. And then when we think about the future, it's generally with a, a sense of anxiety and a sense of um, a lack of, of agency or an inability to imagine uh, better alternatives. Yeah, something I, it makes me think about immediately too, is sort of the um, the moral dimension that you're talking about too, and the way that we relate, you know, to other people, is 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 how it just kind of warps our perspective of who we're talking to and when, right? Again, just on a very practical level, like I'll go back to the way that a lot of people, the way that I talk to certain people on social media, the way they talk to me, the way I watch you know, others talking to each other, especially the lack of kindness that, that you see, but also just in general, like, there's something that's very strange, right? We always say, I think, oh, you know, you would never say that to my face because we're, we're not really perceiving, you know, 
when we are physically together, like our, our sense of time is, is so much more aligned, right? Like we, un- we very understand that we are in the moment with this person. The words that come out of my mouth, like it's going to affect them. It's going to affect, you know, how they look, how they respond to me. It's going to affect the air in the room that we're, <laughs> that we're with together. Um, and all that I think is a relationship to time and a relationship to the present and a relationship to the future. And some of that warping I think has to do with why it's so much easier. It's not just that I'm not in the same room with you. It's that I don't, I'm not almost in the same time as you. So I can say almost whatever I want, or I don't behave in the way that I would if I was there. That's, that's what it makes me think about to some degree. I think that that's such an interesting point about anxiety too, as a sort of a, a disordered relationship to the future that that kind of ruminating it makes a lot of sense and there's something really kind of upsetting right to this idea that you know not only do these tools tend to trap us in that sort of cycle of the past but also that when we do kind of look forward that it's it's in this um really anxious way i mean you're right i think to point to the to the importance of the body i think you know we we are fundamentally embodied beings, right? So um, part of what happens online is that we we abstract the body from our interactions. And so when our sort of embodied presence isn't the, um, I'm not sure that I love this uh, metaphor, but when, when, when our embodied presence isn't our interface with our experience, I think we do lose, we, we lose something or, or we invite uh, ways of relating to one another uh, that might not uh, necessarily be so easy to fall into because of course people can be cruel to each other in you know face to face um you know the the fact that somebody says well you wouldn't say that to me um you know if we were facing maybe they would uh you know people can can be <laughs> remarkably cruel to one another under all sorts of conditions but I, I i do think it's easier because if i'm if i'm present with somebody and i say something that um is insulting or offensive that registers in their body in the in that moment, right? I can I can see the wince, I can see the anger, I can see the shame, and and I immediately perceive that uh, in a way that I don't when I'm interacting in, a, in merely through inscriptions online, right? Um, and 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 again, when when those inscriptions are are removed in time, uh, but also the body is is absent from the exchange. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that that certainly um, at least removes some of the roadblocks to cruelty, you know, and and other forms of harm that we might be too willing to fall into in in online interactions. One place where this this whole conversation is kind of hung around so far is is this idea of of agency, and to me, reading your newsletter uh, on this and thinking quite a bit about it, I just get this this sense that it all builds towards whether it's the the stuckness in the past or the you know the looking toward the future and feeling that kind of anxiety that it all is almost a perfect recipe for feeling powerless, right? And and you know, you, you write that on the internet fighting about what has happened is far easier than imagining what could happen. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not only do we have this sort of anxious look towards the future, this stuckness in the past, but also this this kind of almost a curbing of our imagination. It seems that 
I mean, would you agree that it's a, it is that recipe for, for feeling powerless? It also feels like a recipe for loneliness. It, it just feels like it's almost a, like a worst case conditions, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, to, to, that lead to an action. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that's because when we're interacting online, the only form that action can take is through posting, right? Through adding comments to the discourse uh, or, you know, dropping a meme uh, or what, you know, some some form of of discourse, right? Um, that's that's the only possible. Now, this is not to say that that those online interactions or actions may not generate sort of offline actions that can look very different and can have very serious consequences. But uh, but when we're online, the only shape our action can take uh, is is to just pile on, right? To pile on to the discourse. And in that way, add those layers of, um, um, you know, of, of commentary on top of commentary um, where, you know, it doesn't take very long before everybody has lost sight of whatever the original point of conflict might have been. And we've, you know, stepped into, you know, what I've elsewhere called a kind of meta positioning where we're just trying to figure out what are the people on my side saying so that I can understand how I can under, you know, relate to this particular debate or controversy um, or we're otherwise trying to just, you know, figure out what the appropriate, um, you know, quote tweet is going to be that I can contribute to this viral moment. I, I hesitate to use the phrase real world. I think the online world is very much intertwined with the real world um, and it's very real. Um, but it do, it's not going to generate any kind of satisfying, um, I don't know, resolution. It's not productive action. Uh, and I think most of us know that. And I think if, if that's all we're left with uh, and, and that's all that the present social, political and economic structures of our world have given to us, right? It's as if we have been in some respects stripped of the capacity for genuine public action uh, through political structures, say, and instead been given this never ending spectacle into which we can part, you know, partake and participate and have the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the simulation of, of action, but it's not in fact action in the more substantive sense. And so that's, I think, what does give us a sense of, um, of being stuck, of, of being, you know, powerless, un- unable to affect anything in particular, um, because that, that's the only mode of action that's left to us online is to just cont- to contribute to the archives of the past that, that just build, you know, inexhaustively. Well, it's also this, this and again, I, I, I really take the point and think that it's really important to say, obviously, as, as you did, there is digital activism and there is, you know, there, there is quite a bit, you know, you can do to mobilize, to, to, you know, use these tools for positive social change or political change or, or, or whatever, and, and not to discount that. But I do think there's something really important about this idea of the, the layering on the commentary feeling like an activism yeah. <laughs> or feeling like, you know, the, 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 the best way to get that agency when, when in reality it's, it's not. Um, we actually spoke about this one time <laughs> offline uh, and uh, talked about how this is, there's almost like a cynical influencer culture that this creates, right? Where it is so much easier, but also more kind of 
socially lucrative, you know, more sort of instantaneously rewarding and appealing to, you know, to, to sort of behave like an influencer um, and, and sort of have that, you know, masquerade as, as activism, but really it's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that it's really, again, this, this worst case scenario, because it is, um, I think about it so much in my, in my personal life where, um, I do feel like I see something that I, that I have no control over, right. Something about, you know, the, the war in Ukraine. And, and I do feel like the only way that I, uh, you know, can, can have a little bit of control is to say something publicly about it. But, you know, in reality, that that part of my voice isn't really necessary, right? And there's also nothing that I, there's no change that I'm, you know, going to affect by, like you said, layering on a quote tweet. Do you find your, yourself doing that in, in, in your own sort of experience with social media? Because you are, um, you think about this stuff so deeply, like, do you see yourself falling into that? I think I try to be really disciplined online. So I have Twitter, which uh, is is the the one social media platform that I use um, too much. I'm sure, as as many people would would say, of their own use of of, of, um, of social media or of Twitter specifically. Um, and so I yeah I, I try to be pretty pretty disciplined and to uh, as much as possible practice what I preach as as it were. Um, so I I think that the um, you know, as, as, as you were describing just a moment ago, the, the urge to speak, right? I, I, the urge to do something about things that I'm made aware of through social media, right? So we are tempted to think that we must know about and care about every possible thing happening in the world, right? So, um, you know, electronic media, uh, Television um, and radio already began to do this. Um, in fact, um, you know, there's some evidence that some people related to the telegraph in this way in the 19th century, right? That all of a sudden, the world that they could be sort of immediately attentive to was much wider and broader than their immediate community, right? So there, there was a point at which, right, the, 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 as, as fast as information could travel was as fast as a horse could run. Uh, and, and in that world, uh, you, time and space itself sort of regulated information flows and foregrounded the things that were of immediate concern to you, right? Your community, your town, your, your village, whatever the case may be. Uh, suddenly with electronic media and, and then exponentially more so with digital media, we have as if, as it were, our, our, our senses this is a kind of a, a, a Marshall McLuhan way of putting it, right? But our, our senses have been extended into the whole world, right? Digital media is an extension of our nervous system so that we now can perceive things uh, happening across the globe uh, almost instantaneously, as it were. And my sense of this is that we can't care about it all uh, and we can't know about it all. And I, I, and I don't mean that in the sense that... Um, we, we shouldn't, you know, and this is, I think, part of the, maybe the, the tension that many of us feel. Um, we encounter things that are, are very serious, that are, are worthy of attention, but there's a limit, I think, to how much we are able to focus our attention productively on, on an issue, on a crisis, and, and then to think about what is it that I am capable of doing in relation to this particular development. Um, and mass media did this, uh, already began to do this in the sense that it, it, it kind of made the national 
the, pri the, the primary form of, um, of information that we encountered, uh, say, in, in nightly news, network news. Um, and it, it tended to make local developments and local politics and local events somewhat less of the focus in, in the world of, of, of the media, right? And so in, in the case of digital media, this happens, you know, um, I think uh, by default in the sense that we have, mm -hmm. um, you know, connections, we can easily connect and receive information from across the globe. So I, I think the idea is probably to figure out, knowing that there are many things that deserve our attention, where can my attention and my presence and my action most productively align? And that answer is going to be very different for 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 different people, right? It, I, I may have a different answer given where I am and what my own skills and capacities are than what yours might be and somebody else's might be. But I think that trying to figure out where where I can make attention and and capacity and 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 action meet productively. Um, in my own experience and re and realize that there are limits to me as a human being in terms of what I can know and what I can, the kind of uh, care that I can give and the kind of action that I can contribute uh, and to resist the temptation perhaps to feel as if I myself need to be immediately involved with every particular crisis uh, that, that comes across uh, my feed. Well, and the difficulty too is, I mean, I find in my tortured relationship with social media that I am constantly entertaining this fantasy of you know un unplugging completely right Get, getting getting off off of there and you know there's a bunch of different elements of that complicate this including that my job is to pay attention to this stuff uh but there's another and that's the sort of the the moral value of it right which is to say here is this machine that plugs me into everything that's going wrong with the world to disconnect from it means to some way, you know, it makes me feel like I, I'm, I'm giving up on that and that there's some virtue for me just staring constantly into this, this string of bad news, right? I, if I can absorb it all, then maybe I can either do something about it or help or certainly at the very least, I'm not looking away. And yet at the same time, it's just not actually a productive way. You know, I've talked to numerous people about this from colleagues to friends and, you know, they all end up saying in, in, in a lot of ways, frequently being bombarded, being overwhelmed, being stuck in, in the past, so to speak, or being made anxious about the future makes you a worse, you know, uh, activist or, or makes it harder for you to, um, you know, to really, uh, focus or or to care it paralyzes certain people right instead of spurring them into some kind of action um and you know in a lot of this conversation especially as it pertains to feedback loops um and the cynical kind of influencer culture it all makes me think of politicians right uh you know there's there's the sort of meme now that politicians are professional shit posters right they're professional influencers and a lot of politicians are instead of governing they're kind of influencing they're aggregating getting attention and that attention is power um, but it's not really governing as as we think of it um do you think that some of that feeling of the stuckness i mean our politics feels very stuck right now uh nationally you know in some ways globally um do you think that that has a lot to do with that sort of 
influencer sort of, you know, media dynamic kind of taking hold and influencing every part of our lives? I mean, one way I've thought about it with respect to, um, you know, a, a, a certain segment of political culture and, and certain politicians that maybe are more, more online or have too readily uh, a, adapted to the dynamics of the attention economy. Uh, one way I've thought about that is that, you know, it, it used to be that politicians would kind of show their constituents their value by um, kind of, you know, tying pork barrel spending to their district. Right. So, I you know, I've, I've passed this bill that gives this federal spending that comes right to, to my district to provide jobs or to create a factory. So so it was a very material sort of return. Um, I, I think that's been, in, for some people in some circles, replaced with uh, culture war victories, right, or, or culture war provocations. Uh, and so what, what is most rewarding um, in some cases for, for some politicians and their constituents is, is not that they're governing, um, not that they're effectively directing resources to their constituencies uh, in their districts, uh, but that they are uh, adept at at culture war attention games, uh, and they learn very quickly how to, you know, create the right provocations, uh, which issues can be kind of safely uh, stirred up, uh, and and by safely I mean it's not going to require them actually to follow through on anything. They simply you know kind of pick a fight, uh, carry on that fight, and then get you know the appropriate um, kind of rewards in popularity. From uh, from their from their base, and so those dynamics certainly, I think, have to do with the way that social media has kind of colonized the, the political sphere. You know, you've. I'm thinking about the you know the politicians and the influencers, and let me. I'll use myself as an example, right? I have written quite a bit about um, the ways that certain politicians, especially on the right, you know, use social media tools to sort of help, you know, program news cycles, right? And, and, and kind of hijack our attention in the ways that both myself, but other people in the media amplify them and whether or not, you know, what we're doing is, is a positive, right? Whether, um, whether we're just sort of playing into their hands. Um, and, and I think that, you know, you can make a good case that a lot of times we are, right? A lot of times to, to, you know, be very confessional about it. I frequently feel that when I'm writing about, you know, someone like, let's just say Marjorie Taylor Greene or something like that, doing, doing something outrageous, outlandish, the goal is to expose that to an audience and, and maybe call them to action or, you know, to help understand some awful things that are happening in the world um, and the, and the potential downstream consequences. But I, again, I might just be, you know, feeding that. Mm-hmm. I might just be giving that enough attention to let it keep breathing. And, and so I've felt over the past few years, you know, the desire to want to ignore this, uh, some, mm-hmm. you know, the, these things that, that are awful um, because I think maybe starving it might, Actually, you know, in a world where attention is currency, that might be better. Now, I mean, you've written before about the power of silence. And I'm wondering if, especially in a culture where politicians have become influencers, is silence on 
all of our part, right, is ignoring this type of stuff, whether we're the media or whether we're just outraged people on Twitter with the ability to quote tweet. Is is that a way to break the cycle? Yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think so. I would, I would say there, the moral calculus of the journalist is maybe slightly different than the individual. So for me, um, I would say, yeah, this is my practice. I, you know, I, I think I wrote about this around 2013 or so, right? It, the best I can do is to, um, if I'm a node in a network, right? If that's how I understand my role in the attention economy, I'm a node in a network um, with a, with the kind of provocateurs that you're describing. Uh, the best I could do is is not to to critique, but simply to let that little message die, right? So that if it hits me, it won't spread further through me to those other nodes that I'm connected to, right? So that yes, yeah, silence I think is power, and I and I think this is very counterintuitive. Um, because silence is complicity is the line that I think more readily comes to mind for a lot of people. And so I, I think I want to clarify strategic silence um, and, and that different people, you know, positioned differently in, in hierarchies of power need to think about this differently. Right. But but I'd say for for, you know, the average you know citizen who's on social media and sees this kind of, you know, um, whether it's, uh, you know, green or some other person that uh, is just. Um, said something absurd or offensive or ridiculous. I think the, you know, the issue is that the way that we have connected to those who are like us online, right? So that our our networks often are, by and large, like-minded people, right? Our critique is not necessarily going to change anybody's point of view because they're already going to probably think what we think about it. Um, what it will do is sort of amplify the message and maybe give it more more air, more oxygen than it would have otherwise. Um, and so, I think for for the individual citizen on social media, that that certainly is a, is a viable strategy um, to recognize that even in critiquing, they are often you know rewarding and in, and in amplifying the very thing that they want to to challenge. Um, I, like I said, I think that, you know, a journalist is maybe in a slightly different position because of the kind of responsibility to inform the public uh, that they might feel uh, ethically as part of, um, of of their work. But even here, I mean, I think if we if we kind of take stock of the of the media landscape as it now exists, um, information is is widely available, right? I, you know, I, I was thinking about this in relationship to um you know, something that was on, on Twitter yesterday, I can't remember who tweeted it, but it was a question about whether um, people get their news more on, actually, I think you were on this thread, right? People get their news more on social media than they do on, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to implicate you, um, no, you know, no, on, no. Ca- Go ahead. on cable news, right? <laughs> and um, I, I can see how we can, you know, argue for both. Um, but I think the better question is, what is news, right? What, what does that word mean now? Um it, it meant something under the information ecosystem in the 20th century of mass media. We might think of, of news as having a kind of coherent uh, meaning referent. Um, and it implies, it, you know, my view, it comes out of a, a um, you know, situation of information scarcity where I depend upon the news media, whether that's, you know, the four networks or the local newspaper uh, to tell me what I need to know to supply information to me that I wouldn't have otherwise. Um, there, I don't think there's any press organ that 
has that kind of lock on on information necessarily, right? You know, outfits like the New York Times are able to provide information about context that I would not otherwise have the ability to, to gain information from. But you know, I think even there, um, you know, I there, if I even think about you know the, the war in Ukraine and how quickly we were able to tap into live Twitter feeds from participants on the ground, right? To to learn very detailed information about the movement of troops, about the conditions on the ground, it it, it changes what news means. Um, and so, in that context, I, I I do wonder if it there isn't a case to be made for this strategic silence, even when it feels to cut against the grain of the old, you know, traditional journalistic ethics. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not a journalist, so I don't feel like I'm competent to adjudicate the case, right? But, um, you know, I guess the question is, how much are we informing, right? And and since people have lined up behind their various information sources, because trust is also an important dynamic here, you know, when when somebody for the Times writes about, um, about Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, is anybody being convinced of anything they don't already believe? Uh, you know, what is the 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 um, uh, the outcome here that is worth the attention that you're 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 contributing to, um, you know, to her to her campaign? So I don't know. It's a complicated question that I you know I, I know has vexed me, but um, yeah, and I and I think and I think an even even further complicating element of that too is that occasionally the like a uh, you know. A troll or provocateur or professional politician as troll. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times too, they're they're not just hoping for the the coverage. They're they're hoping for the criticism from a very specific group of people because it signifies to the other side that like look like you know these people you dislike dislike me. Therefore, hey, that's an that's an endorsement. Um, and, and and it is it's it's very very interesting and i think you know you kind of worked through that and especially as it relates to journalists in a way that i think every journalist or many journalists and, and myself very much included it, that's how we're wrestling with this because you don't want to just punt and give up and say you know i mean i think there's something very dangerous about about adopting that you know complete ignoring of, of of these subjects um it's it's a really complicated environment and and i think what makes it so difficult is that and this is what it speaks to is, is we all play a part in some degree even if it's a very small part i love that what you said about being the information node thinking of yourself as a node in that system i really hope that you know anyone who's listening to this adopts that framework even in that little personal way because these are structural problems that we're dealing with and they're bigger than us but that to me feels like the most hopeful empowering part is to imagine yourself yeah. as a piece of that yeah. that system um but before we go I want to I want to just quickly turn to a couple of personal things uh aside of writing about these you know broader media ecosystem dynamics. You, you are one of my favorite writers on, um, you know, other sort of, um, I guess you would call them like more mundane parts of the way that technology intersects with our lives. Um, and I would love to know a little bit about your own experience with digital tools. Um, uh, 
in a different interview you did last year, um, you you said that you think of the body and the world in our minds as creating a circuit. And when we take a technology tool, you know, it, we insert that into the circuit and it changes how we perceive the world and interpret the world. Um, and th- that really stuck with me. And you, you, you mentioned it specifically in a comment of being aware of the way that um, camera phones have changed how you document and relate to raising your young children. And the idea that, um, you know, you have this ability to document their lives at every stage all the time, capture these moments, but that it also makes you really acutely feel the passage of time in a sort of bittersweet way. Um, I'm, I, in my head, you're this very responsible user of all these tools because you're thinking so intensely about it. And, and I'm, I'm curious, um, how you use these sort of, not, not just social media, but these other mundane tools in, in, in your life, like, let's just say the camera phone and has it created a really fraught sense of how you use these tools or, or more of an appreciation for them? (laughs) So I, I hesitate to say anything, so I don't, um, you know, uh, challenge the, the, the wonderful image you have of, of the way I use these tools in your head right now. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I'd like to think that I try to be aware and, and sensitive to that. You know, a lot of what I write actually just emanates from my own struggles, if you like, or the, the challenges I perceive or uh, trying to make sense of, you know, how, how having, you know, a certain um, tool or device in hand is making me relate to myself, to others, to the world, et cetera. So, so yeah, I try to be aware of those things, um, which is not to say that I always, you know, do exactly what I, what I know I ought to do. Um, you know, like I said, I, I, I would readily confess I've spent too much time on Twitter when I ought to have been doing other things, you know, um, I, I've tried to help myself a little bit. Um, I'm still holding out. I don't have a smartphone. Um, that makes some things easier. Um, and it's still right. Whatever phone you have has a camera and, and yeah, with, I think I've learned to kind of allow that, you know, that urge to document, to, to reside, you know, to, to, to subside. Um, I don't feel that quite as keenly. Um, and again, that's another interesting way in which we, you know, we, we become, um, archivists of the past rather than, you know, act, actors in the present, um, because in that in that kind of classic moment, right, where where your your kid is doing something and you want to document it, you've actually kind of interrupted the capacity of your mind to to, to generate you know a memory of that moment that, that you can internally carry with you, and instead you've outsourced it you know to one of the ten thousand photos on your on your smartphone. So. Um, trying to think about these things, being conscious of them, being conscious of the habits that they generate in me. I think there's, there's something um, really fundamentally important about recapturing a sense of our, you know, of what it means to be a human being, its limits and its, you know, its capacities and its, and the joys that it can bring. That's lovely. I think the limitations part is, um, it really resonates in, in a way where I'm not doing that very much. So um, that that kind of brings us to the last question uh, that is always asked here. And I think you're probably going to have a um, maybe a, a more uh, rich answer to this than, than most smartphone uh, addicted humans. Uh, but what is your favorite way to unplug? Great question. Um... I enjoy walking. 
Uh, and I, I've you know tried to do that more. I, I have the benefit of living in a kind of slightly wooded uh, enclave of, uh, of the suburb where I live. Uh, and yeah, I think I've, you know, found that being able to, to walk clears my mind, um, and isn't kind of empowering and, and renewing. Um, so that I think is definitely, um, you know, one of the things that comes, you know, readily to mind. Um, and, and especially if I'm able to do it in places where the human built world, you know, recedes a little bit, uh, to some degree, um, yeah, I find that to be, you know, pretty, pretty life-giving. Um, so I think that's the first thing that, that, that comes to mind right now. I'm not sure if that's very profound or, uh, or, or much more sophisticated than what others might say, but, um, I want to experience life as a gift, not as a project that I need to manage. And so, um, in, in, in being able to be attentive to the world and, and receive it with gratitude as much as I'm able to, um, to experience it as something that, that is is given and not just there for me to um, to manage and control and try to assert my my mastery over um, anything any practice that encourages me in that direction I think is one that you know I try to embrace. That's great. Well, I uh, we're gonna leave you to all of that and and get you off the internet. <laughs> but uh, Michael Sacasas, thank you for joining offline. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Charlie. Offline is a Crooked Media production. It's written and hosted by me, John Favreau. It's produced by Austin Fisher. Andrew Chadwick is our audio editor. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis sound engineer of the show. Jordan Katz and Kenny Siegel take care of our music. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Michael Martinez, Andy Gardner-Bernstein, Ari Schwartz, Andy Taft, and Sandy Gerard for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Konian, and Amelia Montooth, who film and share our episodes as videos every week. Thank you.